Welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Ward. And I'm your other host, Kurt Flagel. And on this particular episode of Life Hurts, God Heals, we are talking about something that all of us, or at least most of us, have had to deal with in our lives. And that's family wounds. God's intentions in giving us families was to bless us. But God also gives every person free will. And sometimes... Some of our family members, or maybe even all of them, choose to inflict wounds out of the wounds that they have and are avoiding dealing with. Where is God in the midst of these wounds? The only way we'll find out is if we are willing to face what is. We must go from hiding and avoiding the wounds to facing them, and that's what we're talking about. So let's just get into the conversation and this first part of family wounds facing what is. Kim, this is very close to home. Just a little, yeah. In fact, that's exactly where it is. This hits home, correct? Yeah. So let's begin by talking about a little bit of you know your background right. so that we have somewhere to start. For those who have not listened to many episodes and heard some of your story, would you just give us a brief snapshot of your family dynamics? So I was adopted, and for the first 34 years of my life, my story started with my adoption, and I had no other details. The only thing I knew about my story at that point was they didn't want me that I was too expensive, that they already had two kids. And so no matter how much you hear you're chosen, in order for you to be chosen, someone has to first not choose you. Someone once said adoption is building a family on the grave of another family. Wow. And that was definitely certainly my experience. I always remember missing, you know, the family I never knew, but always being told that that wasn't an okay thing to feel. So I stopped talking about it. And started telling myself and everyone else, oh yeah, I'm fine. Like, I'm so grateful to be adopted. Because that was kind of what was expected. Because, you know, the truth wasn't wanted in the circles I grew up in. I grew up in a home where we went to church. (laughs) And we were there every Sunday. You know, we were encouraged to go to, you know, Bible studies and all of this stuff. But what I saw on Sunday mornings and what I read in the Bible was not what I experienced in my home. Much as I love my parents, they were very broken. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of perfectionism that led to a lot of nothing I did was ever good enough. And also just always feeling like the main reason that we were there was to work. Like our wants and needs for a lot of the time didn't matter. There was a lot of emotional and physical abuse. And it was a very unsafe environment to grow up in to the point where for a while I slept in the closet not because I had to but because it it felt like an extra barrier between my mom or dad potentially just coming in angry and hot because sometimes they wouldn't realize I was in there (laughs) it gave me a little extra time to to have space it was either hiding and being in the closet being completely alone or utter chaos and my life didn't have too much of a middle ground for the most part It was normal, the amount of chaos and the amount of tension. Uh, There's always this feeling of it wasn't safe to share who I was. That was my normal. At the same time, you know, I I always laugh because I had a very firm foundation of scripture 
and Bible teaching. I mean, I might not have seen it displayed in real life as far as it being lived out very well, but it was everything I was taught by my parents about the Bible that wound up holding me up in the end. Mm. I've said it before when we've talked about it, I never doubted that God existed. Mom made sure that, you know, we had logical reasons for our faith, not just, oh, this is what the church and the Bible says. Which is something, you know, now, as an adult, I very much appreciate having that foundation. Because it was what I needed in terms of being able to hold on to God when things, you know, went pear-shaped. You talk about stuffing those emotions down. Yeah. And the message that was delivered to you was, you know, those, those things don't matter. That's why you stuff them down, right? Yeah. They got to come out somewhere. You can't hold down water. Like when, a, when something's leaking, no matter how much you try to hold that water back, it's going to find a way out, right? Yeah. Especially when it's pressurized. And the longer that stuff gets pushed down, the more pressurized it becomes. It's like steam. There's a reason like steam engines and other things have safety release valves, right? As the pressure builds, something needs to be released. So where did that come out? I think when I was younger, especially, some of it actually came out in kind of a quick temper, which would have surprised some people, at least. Certainly not with my parents. I had enough self-preservation instincts. But um, when it came to being teased or having my buttons pushed or my boundaries crossed, I very quickly went from, you know, the one not causing any drama to the one using my fists to get you to stop. I was like, oh, I'm not angry. I'm just annoyed. It's not an Enneagram 9 response at all. <laughs> I was like, I asked you five times to stop. I told you exactly what I would do if you didn't mm. stop. I had a very strong sense of justice as a kid. And so I saw all this unfairness and all this do as I say, not as I do double standards on top of everything else. So then when I was like, well, okay, I gave more warnings than you deserved. And then I followed through, you know, it made sense to me. It was one area I could have justice, even if I had to administer it myself and then take my beating afterwards. And then... For me, I think probably the only other emotional release was probably through reading and movies. I didn't seem to know how to feel things a lot of the times, or I felt it and I quickly, you know, pushed it down. But I could cry for people in books or people in movies if they were hurting, and that kind of that was kind of my other my other release for that. Yeah, because that was safe because there was a little bit of a detachment. Right, a buffer. Yeah. It didn't hurt as badly as if I'd faced my own pain. I mean, eventually all that pressing down led to depression. I didn't know that's what it was. And I was the quiet kid who hid in my room anyway, so my parents didn't notice. They were a little wrapped up in, well, everything else. Plus, my sister is uh, my exact opposite, where I am a bit more quiet. She is very loud and very demonstrative and if she feels something isn't fair you will know it within five seconds for me the depression started probably in junior high but then by the time we hit high school my sister by that point wasn't just fighting with me and pushing my buttons 
she started going punk and everything that entails and my parents probably wouldn't have cared about that so much if the attitude hadn't gotten monumentally worse in the process to the point where she was partying and drinking and because of the choices she was making it came to a point where she was cutting and she was suicidal and I spent two years two or three years just not knowing if the next day I was going to wake up and she was going to be gone Adding to the chaos. <laughs> Adding, the, yeah. My, my chaos that I had thought was so crazy as a child, the levels kept ramping up. Every time you thought you hit a new high, the high just got higher. And, and unfortunately, with the way our childhood was, I trusted no one. I didn't think anyone was safe to talk to. Even if I had wanted to, as you've experienced on occasion when I have to do, talk about something that's even remotely hard, even the thought would freeze me up. So in the middle of all that, you know, she's writing suicide notes and all this stuff, and I'm thinking the same things. You're thinking the same things as her? Yeah. I'm just making sure that if I do it, I'm going to be successful. Because I saw how much attention you got, and it wasn't the kind of attention I wanted if you tried and failed. Then have your every move watched. But it it was in the middle of all that, where I couldn't turn to people. I hit the point where I'm like, okay, well... God, either you're real, which I'm pretty sure you are, you've got to step in and change something because, I mean, I spent the last four years praying to you that you would take me home and that I wouldn't even make it to 18. And at this point, I'm like 18, 19. And I'm like, I, I need you because I got to talk to someone. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're not going to respond. And I didn't recognize that he was responding right away. But he did. He brought people into my life that were safe, that may not have been perfect, but who gave me a, a safe place to hide and to rest and to not feel all the pressure of being in my family at that point. When you say hide, I'm guessing that you mean a different kind of hiding than sleeping in the closet. Yes. So I was, I was 18, 19. I was working. I was paying rent, but my parents still weren't letting go of control. There was a lot of control and a lot of manipulation that was going on. And they pretty much thought if I wasn't working, I should be, or volunteering, because I was volunteering with the youth group. But if it wasn't one of those nights, I pretty much should be home, which was obviously a very chaotic and unsafe place. Mm -hmm. So my friend, who was the youth pastor at the church, pretty much said, let me know ahead of time, but I'll leave the youth room unlocked. And I admit, I frequently told my parents I was working when I wasn't, because that was the only way that I would have been allowed. It, it almost felt like there was jealousy, because I wanted to spend time with people that weren't them, if that makes sense. So I would say I was going to work, and instead I would drive all the way back up to Cayucas, and then I would go hide in the youth room, and listen to music or just lay there and think and process and talk to God. But I had space for anywhere from like four to six hours. And that was kind of the start of, hey, I love you. You're not alone. Hearing that from him. Yeah. In what way? Like what are some ways that he spoke that into you? I think the first was just having a safe place was such a huge deal having people I felt safe with. And so where the church is in this little town, it's a beach town, 
if you go to the other side of the church, then there's a park, and then if you go down a little bit towards the ocean, there's a cliff with an out overlook. And I just remember that I was helping with youth group at the time, which that was kind of a by the grace of God moment in and of itself because I was just a year or two out of high school myself. And logically, I probably shouldn't have been just knowing where I was. I don't know how much help I was other than maybe a little bit as an enforcer of the rules with that nice sense of fairness and justice and rules must be followed. But I remember a lot of the times, like, we'd be singing worship songs and, you know, talking about how amazing God is and how much he loves us. And I normally didn't make it past two worship songs, if that, before I'd just be so overwhelmed. I was like, okay, I need to cry, and obviously I'm not going to cry in front of all these people. And so I would go sneak out. Well, I don't know how sneaky I actually was, but it certainly was allowed. <laughs> And they acted like they didn't notice 98% of the time. I would go around the side of the church and I would go down to the cliff and I would just start crying and talking to God. And I remember so clearly random scriptures that my mom had forced me to memorize would just start playing back in my head. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Actually, that was probably the main one that was over and over again. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Just on a loop. And of course, I just assumed that it was my imagination because at that point, I hadn't really been taught how God speaks. It was more of a just, hey, pray and ask God, but they never gave any parameters for what him answering looked like. Hmm. And just looking out the ocean and seeing how big everything was. And I could swear I felt his presence. I didn't necessarily realize what it was, but there was something that was kind of comforting just being out there staring at the water, sometimes freezing by the time I got back. And that was so much of it. There was just, you know, those little little keep-going moments. Well, even in that, Kim, I mean, the fact that you didn't feel safe to show your emotions with anyone. Mm. And so when the goodness and the love of God overtakes you, you need an emotional release. So you leave all the people but you go to be with God. Right there is a sign of his presence where you intuitively were growing to sense how safe you were in his presence, that you would run to him to let out the emotions that you didn't feel safe enough to share with anyone. Like, that's a big deal, right? Yeah. I guess it just never seemed like it to me because I was like, well, what's the worst he's going to do? Especially at that point, I can't see him. I don't know what he sounds like. So what if I'm talking to a glass ceiling or a wall? Does it matter? Still safer than talking to people who have a reaction that I will have to deal with. Hmm. It was at least the, you know, kind of the initial thought process on that one. And yet it's exactly what he invites us to, in Scripture, taste. And see. That the Lord is good. Yeah, because even when just what I was saying was just, okay, I'm hearing how good you are and how present you are, and I don't see it. Because that was half the struggle for me was, I, you know, I'm singing all this stuff and I'm not experiencing it. I'm reading all of this stuff in Scripture and I'm not. It's not evident. Let me, let me see if I'm hearing this right. Mm. Looking back, you are seeing the evidence that even having Robert in your life and Emily, yeah. his wife, 
the youth pastor and his wife, having them in your life, having that space for a season anyway to go to the youth room, the scriptures that were popping into your brain randomly, quote, unquote, (laughs) randomly. Quote, unquote, randomly. Yes. I mean, obviously there's then what led to the whole youth with a mission experience, which we've mentioned, which was a missions trip that was definitely a God thing to get me to go on in the first place. Right. Other people initiated. Yeah. I certainly said no often enough. And and, and yet, eventually... It kept coming back, right? It kept coming... Yeah, it kept coming back. I think I actually wound up registering for the missions trip late because he asked one more time. And at that point, I'm like, well, I guess this might be God. At the very least, I don't want to disappoint Robert. He seems to want me to go, so I guess maybe. You know, I had a pretty high opinion of him. It was so weird. I even think, like, some of the songs that came out that I hadn't heard, that I wouldn't have heard if it hadn't been for, for Robert, they were kind of needed triggers. That was when Barlow Girl's song, Never Alone, talks about, I waited for you today, but you didn't show, oh no. I needed you today. And where did you go? You promised that if I call, you'd said you'd be there. So though I can't see you, are you still there? Because that was the question I was asking. Was God, I don't see you, are you there? And obviously he was, but at the time I couldn't see it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're on this missions trip and we're driving down to Mexico in the the great white van. Uh, So many good memories in that van. And we're driving down and Robert was in a little bit heavier music than I was, which actually for me was kind of triggering because yelling did not have any good connotations in my world. Right. So it took me a little bit. Um, but he really liked Cutlass, and it, it's just in their first album. There's that song, Run. You know, why do you run? Why do you hide? Don't you know I just want to be with you? And, of course, I'm like, okay, look out the window, because I can cry and look out the window. I can do this silently. I've got my hoodie. I was very good at making sure I was uh, had a window seat. <laughs> so you could see out that window. So I could yeah. look out the window and have no one see my face. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that was the first time I had to wind up sitting through the whole song. And so I'm sitting there bawling my eyes out going, I'm like, I want to be with you, but I don't know how to do this. If this is true, like, I want this. You know, and then we're down in Mexico. And of course, it's awkward. And, you know, we're serving, we're building houses. You're watching these people who had nothing. I mean, we weren't building great houses. It wasn't one of the fancier missions organizations. It was literally plywood. It was like an 8 by 12 plywood building with a roof and a plywood door and a dirt floor. But it was so much better than what they were coming from. But they were trying to feed us and take care of us. And I was just like, this is, like, amazing. Yeah, I get it. It's like, great, we're building them a house. But them feeding us, that cost them a lot based on what they had. You know, that was the equivalent of giving us a $1,000 dinner in the States. And I just sat there going like, wow, is this something you want me to do more of? Question mark. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it touched my heart, but at the same time it scared the royal crud out of me, you know, going out of my comfort zone. Before we move into mm. holiday stuff, right. was there anything else that was pivotal for you in that time where you had the question mark of, are you there, God? Do you really care about me? Was there any other way that you recognized God's movement 
well, since we were talking about the missions trip, how that ended was interesting for me. So remember I said, am I called to do something with missions? I don't want to. And then I remember there was this couple who worked with LifeWater, which is an international missions organization that drills wells, teaches people, the people in the country, how to run them themselves so that they have clean, safe drinking water. They were former Youth With a Mission or YWAM people. They had been saying for, like, I think the last year or two before that, hey, Kim, we think you should go to YWAM. And I kept saying no. Or I'd smile and nod non-committally when I really meant no. But I remember in the middle of all that, I was like, maybe I'm supposed to go to YWAM. I don't know if this is you, God, but if it is, show me. Because I don't even know how to go about that. And I remember I got home from the missions trip, and I don't even think it was a week later. And I get the, Kim, we need to talk, come to the living room. Which, quite frankly, that is terrifying. Yeah. That has like not been a good experience. Worse than being called to the principal's office. Which I've also had that happen, but anyway. So I go and I sit down and I'm like, okay, what's up? And I hear my dad go, hey, we feel like you don't know what you want to do with your life and you have seem to have no direction. And we know that the couple from the church has mentioned YWAM to you. And, you know, we've been thinking while you were gone, we were looking into it. Both that and Joshua Tree Institute, which is the program that uh, Hume Lake has. And we feel like you should go to one of these. And depending on which one you choose, we will pay all of your lecture phase. And all you'll have to do is fundraise for the missions trip part. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, really, God? Okay, well, I guess this is a yes. I'll take this as a yes, but feel free to slam a door in my face. I probably wouldn't object that much. That was a big sign. (laughs) That was a very big sign. For them to initiate, right? They initiated, they brought it up, they paid. And, you know, I did one fundraiser with the church. Mind you, I'd been going to that church since I was 10. So, you know, there's a little bit of that, oh, baby. It's the cute, it's like when you see the cute fluffy kitten that you've known forever. You're like, oh, you want to do what? Okay. <laughs> like, I mean, it wasn't bad, but it, there was definitely a little bit of the, oh, this is our, our kid. Like, as long as you're not asking for anything ridiculous, like, pretty much, here you go. Right. And so I think I paid $100 out of pocket for my missions trip phase. I had to do one of the worst things ever. I had to go up in front of the entire church and tell them what I wanted to do and explain what it was. And apparently I needed to get used to that idea since it keeps happening. Talk about God preparing way in advance. But yeah, that was that was such a huge way that he showed up. Week two of the school was a whole week on how God speaks and the different ways he speaks. And, hey, now you're going to put this into practice and you're going to keep practicing it for the next six months. And how long does it take for things to become habits? I don't know. Usually, if I remember correctly, it's three months, Hmm. 90 days, is when something becomes a A habit. habit. Yes. And they made sure we had plenty of practice as far as listening for him speaking, and not just for ourselves, but for other people. Because scripturally, God's very clear. My sheep know my voice. It doesn't say, hey, you know my voice just for yourself. He's very clear that our relationship with him is not just for us, but to impact other people. Yeah. 
let you receive all that love and that sense of his joy and how much he celebrates us. It's meant to be received so that it can be reflected, right? To live out of the overflow. Yeah. Mm. Here's all these experiences, by the way. One of the ones for me is is the multiple times that you kept hearing YWAM over and over again is one of those principles I live by yep. is that if you hear it more than twice and it's not prompted by you, some message, the same message, that most likely is God speaking. And if you hear it three times, then that's when I take it as confirmation. When I hear it twice, unprompted, a message from a person or circumstances or through scripture or a combination of all of those. Yeah. If I hear it twice, that's when I begin praying for a third one. Okay, God, I think this is you. Will you make it clear? Give me a third confirmation. And if I get one, I will obey. I will yeah. step into this and trust that you'll meet me there or, you know, make it clear that it's not you. That's one of the things I hear in that story of YWAM over and over and over again. God spoke the same message because he meets us where we are. Yeah. And he knows the world is noisy. And we have all these negative voices, not only externally, but internally speaking to us. Yeah. And so one of his kindnesses is to say something over and over again so that we become aware that it's him. Yeah. He's, he's good like that. He meets us there. Good thing he's persistent. Yes. This wraps up part one of Family Wounds Facing What Is. Join us next time as we continue with part two of Family Wounds Facing the Holidays. What do we do when the holidays keep dredging up the wounds? Join us for that discussion next time on Life Hurts, God Heals. And please know you can reach out to us with any of your questions, your prayer requests, or if you need help because you're feeling stuck in some area of your life. I am a coach for transformation that helps people move forward on their journey. If you want more information, or you want prayer, or you have questions, you can email me at coachkurt777 at gmail.com. And as always, remember that you are God's beloved, so be loved.